case for this sitting is 2023-10362, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine et al. versus U.S. Food and Drug Administration et al. versus Danco Laboratories, LLC. We'll hear first today from Ms. Harrington from the DOJ, the FD, and the FD, on behalf of the FDA. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the court, Sarah Harrington on behalf of the federal defendants. The district court's order is an unprecedented and unjustified attack on FDA's scientific expertise. This court should vacate the order because plaintiffs are unlikely to prevail on any of their claims and because the balance of equities tips decidedly against preliminary relief. You know, I, I hate to cut you off so early, but you said unprecedented. We had a challenge to the FDA just yesterday. You had a challenge to the FDA, yes, but I don't think there's ever been any court that has vacated FDA's determination that a drug is safe to be on the market. Didn't the FDA just withdraw a subpart H drug just last month? FDA can make that determination based on exercising its own scientific expertise, but it's not a court's role to come in and second guess that expertise, and no court has ever done that. I guess I'm just wondering why not just focus on the facts of this case rather than have this sort of FDA can do no wrong theme. I'm happy to focus on the facts of this case. I think it's important to understand the case in context, though. In our view, the most straightforward way to resolve this appeal is on threshold grounds, because the plaintiffs have not even come close to establishing standing on any of their many theories of standing, and because their central claims are time barred. I'm gonna start, if I can, with their theories of individual and associational standing. Plaintiffs and their members are not regulated parties. FDA's approval of Mifepristone does not require them to do anything at all. They claim injury from speculative downstream effects of choices made by a chain of other people who are not parties to this lawsuit. They allege that they have treated occasional patients who present to the emergency room with complications from taking mifepristone. But even they do not argue that simply treating a patient injures a doctor. Instead, they offer four theories of injury, none of which is a cognizable Article III injury that is traceable to any action of the FDA. First, they assert that they and their members will be forced to complete abortions in violation of their religious beliefs. That assertion fails for multiple reasons. First, none of them, not even one of their declarants, alleges that he or she has been compelled in the past to perform any procedure in violation of his or her religious beliefs. Their carefully worded declarations refer to experiences of other people who are not plaintiffs. They describe having provided care without saying that they objected to it or considered it to be an abortion and they make unsupported allegations that they will in the future be required to do things that they've never in the past been required to do. It seems that some of the declarations allude to possible surgeries and that sort of thing. Well, none of, them, none of their declarant says that he or she has in fact been forced to participate in any procedure that they would consider to be an abortion. The it says surgeries in, in post-abortion care. I'm not sure or any of them says that they have actually done it. They refer to other people having done it. Um, Dr. Scott says that she has cared for patients who have needed procedures after taking mifepristone. She doesn't say that she actually provided those procedures. She doesn't say that she objected to them even if she did provide them, which again, she doesn't say. She doesn't say that she objected to them on religious grounds. And none would of them- Would oppose with the, her colleague or one of the other doctor's colleagues who performed a DNC, would that count? No, because that person is not a plaintiff to this case, right? You need to have an identified plaintiff in the case who can say that they are imminently going to be injured. And none of them has said that they've been injured in this. The affiants said that they were either plaintiffs or members of a plaintiff organization. 
But plaintiff organizations need to identify specific members. This is the Supreme Court has held this in Summers and um, Clapper and other cases. But wouldn't the affidavits be that specification? Or are you saying there has to be something more than that? Yes, but none of the affidavits even alleges that they themselves have had to participate in an abortion against their religious beliefs. They're very carefully worded, but they, none of them actually says that. And you can't read that critical piece of that critical fact into the allegation, into the declarations. Excuse me. They You're also saying what you need to have standing is an expression of uh, an objection of conscience. What I'm saying is you need to prove that there's, you're at imminent risk of being injured. One of their theories of injuries is that they will be forced to do things against their religious beliefs, but they've never alleged that they've, that's ever happened in the past, and there's no reason to think it would happen in the future. Do they say religious belief or conscience? Well, either one. I think they could say either one, but neither thing have, they've never alleged that any identified plaintiff has been required to perform an abortion against their religious or conscience beliefs in the past. And they also ignore conscience protections in federal and state law. I want to make sure I understand the argument. Uh, looking at the Francis uh, Declaration, paragraph 15, uh, members are opposed to being forced to end the life of a human being in the womb for no medical reason, including by having to complete an incomplete elective chemical abortion. So that's certainly an expression of a conscious objection on behalf of members. Absolutely. We don't dispute their sincerely held beliefs to, uh, or their objections to engaging in those activities. But the point is they're not an imminent risk of being forced to do that. And they've never, they don't allege that they've ever been forced to do it in the past. And it would be surprising if they could allege that because they have robust conscience protections in federal and state law. They ignore those protections and they blatantly mischaracterize the position that the government took in a different case about EMTALA. What is the government's position about EMTALA? Do, does a physician's uh, objection based upon conscious reasons trump EMTALA. But the, the obligations of EMTALA run to the hospital that accepts federal funds, but yes. it doesn't require any particular individual plaintiff, sorry, excuse me, doctor to perform any particular procedures that he or she has a religious objection to. What about one doctor emergency rooms? Again, the obligation runs to the hospital, and so the hospital would need to ensure that there's someone on staff, if they have accepted the federal funds and agreed to the conditions of EMTALA, who can perform whatever, perform, excuse me, whatever emergency care is needed as required under EMTALA. But plaintiffs have robust, excuse me, do objecting doctors have robust protections under RIFRA. Uh, the, these plaintiffs, and none of their declarants explain. Uh, what about the, the assertion that this violates the Hippocratic Oath? Is that covered by RIFRA? I, I, no, I think RIFRA just covers religious objections. Exactly. I mean, you, your, your argument, as I ascertain it, is sort of that, that RIFRA is coterminous with conscience objections, but conscience objections could go a lot farther than just religious-based objections, right? Right, but there are conscience, there are conscience protections in, in place in federal and state law that aren't necessarily tied to religious objections. And HHS, in all of its years of enforcing EMTALA, is not aware of any instance in, where, in which a doctor has been forced to engage in any procedure against his or her conscience beliefs. And I thought the declarants here said they've seen these patients, they've cared for them, I take that to being they treated them, and that they expect to see more in the future. How's that not enough for standing if the doctor also has a conscience objection to doing so. Because they very carefully don't say that they've ever had to do something that they have a conscience objection. How deferential well, are we to the de declarations at this stage? I mean, this isn't this isn't summary judgment where we would take everything in the light most favorable to the non-movement. We're at a preliminary injunction phase. So how, how much should we scrutinize and, and split words of what 
are in those declarations. Well, Your Honor, it's not splitting words. We have to take what they say in the declarations as true, but if they haven't actually said that they've had to do the thing that they fear will happen in the future, that that's happened to them in the past, we can't read that into it. Right? They, they understand what they need to do to allege standing. They understand what they need to do to allege a past injury. They have very carefully they not alleged that. Specific question, record on the ROA 277 to 279. She says she's performed surgery on at least a dozen of women after a failed chemical abortion, sometimes including removing the embryo or fetus. Is that not akin enough, removing the... the the embryo or fetus in a surgical proceeding. <coughs> she doesn't ever say that she was compelled to do that against her religious beliefs. And it would be, again, surprising if she had been compelled to do that because there's protections for conscience Paragraph and religious Paragraph 34 beliefs. of that same, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it specifically says harms my conscience rights. But she doesn't explain how, why she didn't raise her conscience rights uh, in, in attempting to avoid that duty. In an emergency context? That's a different point, though. That's no. not that she didn't swear to it, it's that she screwed up by not actually invoking her legal rights. No, well, we don't know that she was compelled to do anything against her conscience rights. She claims she's done things, she doesn't claim that she was forced to do it against her conscience rights. It's not an injury to do things if you don't, if you don't have an objection that you raise at the time to doing them. And, there's cer and certainly, even if you thought that there had, even if you thought there were allegations that there had actually been a violation, that someone had been compelled to complete an abortion or perform an abortion against their conscience or religious beliefs, which I think if you look carefully, you'll find that there isn't. It's well, pure speculation. Well, in my practice, I often treat patients admitted uh, to the emergency department, I'm paraphrasing, with complications from chemical abortions. Paragraph 13, in my practice, I've cared for several dozen women in the, in the emergency who are totally unprepared for the pain and bleeding experience due to chemical abortion. But none of this- Paragraph 17, paragraph 18, paragraph 21, it's- But none of the things you just read say that she, that this person was compelled to, com to complete an abortion. Caring for a, a patient who's admitted to the emergency room after, after taking mifepristone isn't but the same thing. Your point that you have to perform the abortion, you, you can't do other things related to that practice, that would not count as a conscious violation? What I'm saying is they haven't said that they have been forced to do things against their conscience. And even if they had said it, which I, again, I don't think they have, but I don't, we don't need to get bogged down in it if, if we have a disagreement about that, it's purely speculative whether it would happen in the future. They have these robust conscience and protections and religious uh, belief protections. Um, there's no reason to think that it would happen imminently. Uh, Supreme Court's cases like Clapper and Summers and Lujan and Lyons all say you need to have, you need to have an identified plaintiff who is an imminent risk. C cases like, to be fair, cases like Clapper and Summers, there was no real serial, right, that's right. Let's talk about, well, no, Clapper and Summers both involved no real past injury of any kind. Summers did involve past injuries. There were identified plaintiffs who had suffered injuries. Uh, there was, in fact, there was a specific project that had been challenged at the court. That, that wasn't even part of the case. Right, that, that, that had settled, right. But the plaintiffs, but, but still, the plaintiffs said that they alleged, the Supreme Court agreed that they had been injured in the past. And they said that wasn't enough, even though it was almost certain that some member of the association would be injured in the future by some Forest Service project well, it wasn't going forward. sufficient to have standing for what was left in the case. But that's all that this case is. It's about seeking prospective relief, right? Well, so They're not you seeking. Take, I'm sorry. If Dr. Scop has already done this in dozens of times, and she says that I'm going to continue be, to be doing this, what, what more does she need under the existing case law? I don't think, again, I don't think she says she's done it, she's done anything against her conscience or been compelled to do it uh, dozens of times. But even if she had, she would need to show that it's imminent, that it's going to happen in the future, and that, that 
that injury is traceable to something that FDA has done. Here you have a chain of you know, five or six people in between the FDA's approval or more uh, of the drug and anything that could happen to any of these doctors. You're not disputing the idea that in the future, because of the FDA's actions, more women will, will uh, turn up at emergency rooms needing emergency care. What you're saying is it's not imminently pend impending that anybody will have to be forced to violate their conscience objections. So we're absolutely disputing that many women will show up at emergency rooms and, or that more will show up at emergency rooms needing emergency care from taking mifepristone. All of the evidence establishes that mifepristone is an extremely safe drug. The rate of serious complications is well under 1%. So there's, it's extremely statistically unlikely that any woman will need to go to the emergency room to seek care after taking mifepristone. Can we talk about the Wozniak real quick? Uh, the Wozniak affidavit says, in the last six months, I had this experience. That's at paragraph 23, and then paragraph 29, in my experience, I expect to, to see and treat more. Again, uh, but seeing and treating oops. patients isn't itself an injury. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Judge Ho. Oh, no, please. Um, so seeing and treating patients on its own isn't an Depending injury. themselves with complications from chemical abortion. But that's, but just treating patients isn't an injury, right? It's, you have, their theories of injury are that they, it violates their religious beliefs, that it um, will increase their liability and insurance costs, that it will take time and attention away from other patients, and that it causes them stress, okay? The, but the first three of those, they don't actually allege it's happened. If you're talking about the liability and insurance costs, again, their carefully worded declarations never say that any of the plaintiffs has faced any liability in connection with Mifepristone or has suffered any increase in insurance costs, and there's no reason to think that would happen. Do I recall in the SBA case, there was essentially one pass incident and uh, the assurance that SBA was going to continue to engage in its activities and so expected future occurrences. One past expectation of future and that was enough. But in SBA it was a directly regulated Just, party. Yes, that was, uh, I know you're going to distinguish it, but am I correct about the facts? Yes, the directly regulated party had had one experience in the past, yes. Okay. But these are not directly regulated parties. And the Supreme Court in Lujan, in this case, in cases like E.T. versus Paxton, have made clear that it's much harder to establish standing when you're not the directly regulated party, when you're saying you Are have- you suggesting that it's gonna be a different metric based on whether the injury is direct regulation versus conscience? That's what the Supreme Court has said. That's what this court has said. It's much harder to show that you face an imminent risk of injury in the future. If you're not the directly regulated party, it's much harder to show traceability because there are other okay, people- How many establishment clause cases there are, which are basically conscience cases, where seeing it once and wanting to go back again is enough. It is true that the First Amendment does have sort of a, a um, a laxer, sometimes it is applied in a more lax way, and Susan B. Anthony is arguably First Amendment sort of speech rights, right, and petitioning rights. But again, there is a directly regulated party who faces criminal, potential criminal liability, administrative sanctions. Well, the typical establishment clause case is certainly not a regulated party. That's a pure conscience right. I don't want to see the, the Ten Commandments monument. But there are no First Amendment claims in this case. This is an APA case. Okay, but we're talking about conscience. Just, I feel like you're pushing back with, I, I'm trying to deal with the underlying principle. The underlying principle is the conscience right. Yeah. How much of a conscience right is enough to establish uh, the, the standing for PI purposes in cases like Lyon and uh, Lyons and uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> SBA? Right, but I don't, I don't. We don't dispute that they have conscience objections. The, the question is, is it traceable to anything that FDA has done? And that's where you get into this. That's where it's important that they're not regulated parties, because what you have between FDA and any of these doctors is independent choices by many other people who are not parties to this case. We have a lot of cases, uh, environmental cases, where an environmental group, not a regulated party, will sue the regulator because they're allowing some private entity to engage in some sort of commercial development activity, what have you, that results in environmental harm. 
That's Summers, essentially, right? I mean, that's similar to Summers. Uh, there are a lot of cases, yeah. Right, but th those people are forced, those people are required to establish standing, and they're required to show imminence of an injury. Uh, you know, generally, what they're doing is challenging an ongoing activity, um, and so, uh, like Laidlaw is an example of that, right? Where there were discharges into agree, water. Then, the fact that it's a third party is not a problem. Right, but they, there they were showing a direct injury from the activity that was being allowed. Here, again, it's the, the, from the activity that was being, from the, um, the agency action that was, that's being challenged. Here you have approval of a drug. FDA's approval of a drug doesn't require anyone to do anything. The manufacturer doesn't have to make it, nobody has to ship it, nobody has to prescribe it, and nobody has to take it. Okay, you have to have all of those things happen and then have a very rare incidence of serious side effects before any of those patients are the Department of Commerce case, where it seemed to be a discussion about how once the government uh, engages in activity, there's predictable third-party responses. There will be women who will take this. Right, but there you had, the, there you had. That's not speculation though, is it? <clears throat> it wasn't speculation, but there you, first of all, there it was, you know, you had, uh, there the plaintiffs were states, and so they were, the, the effects on them happened at a population level, a population-wide level, and so if there was sort of, you know, 2% fewer people who responded to the census, they would get 2% less money, right, 2% fewer dollars. Um, here, there's nothing like that. You're talking about, you need to show injury to individual plaintiffs. You can't rely on population-wide statistics and probabilities to establish imminence. Could you, so it's not the number of instances, right? Is that, you're saying it's the, whether it's certainly impending that one doctor will be forced to perform one abortion against their conscience? So that's what the Supreme Court has said, yes. So. No, but is that, Yes, that's what I'm saying, but I'm saying I'm not making it up. I'm, I'm just calling no, it so, court. No, so if it was only one, that's good enough. But you're just saying it's not sufficiently certain. Right, it's absolutely uncertain that this is going to happen. Right. And so in summers, I think it was statistically... It's uncertain because people are not going to go to the hospital where they are in these rural areas and there's only one emergency doctor who happens to be in this group. So I think it's very unlikely that that's going to happen. And again, we don't know that it's ever happened to these plaintiffs or to anyone else. Because when a patient, when a provider prescribes mifepristone to a patient, he has to say, he has to, he signs a piece of paper saying, I have plans to provide any follow-up surgical care that's needed. And if I'm not able to do that, then I have designated someone else who's going to do it. That's, that's very puzzling to me, I have to say, because it's, it's, it's my understanding that most of these cases the, the dispenser, the prescriber, is not the person who provides the care in the follow-up care. And especially whenever it says if you have an emergency on the form, it will say go immediately to the nearest emergency room. That will be the provision that they make most often. And, you know, that was certainly at issue in all of those cases involving um, emergency admitting pr privileges and that sort of thing. The idea that the provider is not the doctor who is giving, and it's not a criticism of them, but they are not usually at a full ambulatory services center many times, even if it is in person, certainly not if it's a male business thing on the computer. Um, so they're not gonna be the per person caring. It's going to be, in fact, they're gonna be referred to the emergency room. Isn't that the more common situation in dispensing of medication abortion? 
it is not at all the more common situation. And, and so one thing I think in your question, you're conflating two things, which is the need for follow-up care and the need for emergency care. It is true that if there's a need for emergency care, then a patient is probably very likely to go to the emergency room. That's what her doctor will tell her to do. But again, that happens in less than 1% of all cases of people who take mifepristone. Now, the state panel relied on the patient agreement form, which reveals that something between 2 and 7% of patients in, those, in that population, the drug won't work. But that, what that means is that it won't successfully terminate the pregnancy in the usual 14-day treatment period. But those people will go back to their doctor and discuss with their doctor. Not if they didn't get it from a doctor. I mean, the FDA's relaxed the requirement that the provider even be They'll a doctor. They'll go back to their provider and discuss with their provider. Who nurse midwife? Yes, and discuss with their provider the next step. But even in that small population. Mail order pharmacy? Mail order pharmacy is not the prescriber. I mean, it just strikes me that what the FDA has done in, in making this more available and, and doing it by mail order and removing the doctor visits as well as the requirement that the prescriber be a doctor is you've made it much more likely that, that patients are going to go to emergency care or a medical clinic where one of these doctors is a member. I don't see how you square that circle. I don't think any of that is right, and that hasn't been borne out by the evidence. So, oh, speaking of the evidence, oh, oh, did you want to answer more fulsomely? If, if I may, yes. Um, so you, you have to get a, the, you, you have to have a prescription to get the drug, just like all other prescription drugs. You can get that from someone who's authorized by state law to prescribe the drug. The FDA requires that that person be able to date gestational age of a pregnancy and assess for ectopic pregnancy. So that, again, decreases the number of people who can actually prescribe the drug. It's true that you can get the prescription from a pharmacy now, just like you get all your other prescriptions, but that doesn't mean that the person who prescribed the drug, your provider, isn't there to do to talk with you, you about no, the follow-up care. No doctor has to be involved. No doctor has to be involved, that's true. But, but most of the women who, for whom the, the drug doesn't end their pregnancy in the first 14 days don't need surgical intervention. They talk to their provider, they either do a wait and see, they take a second dose of misoprostol, uh, and, and that the second dose of misoprostol works in something like 95% of those cases. So it's very rare that they need actual surgical follow-up, and when their provider is someone who's not equipped to, to provide that care, they are required by FDA to have put in place a plan before doing the prescription to allow those women, to identify for those women someone that they can go to to get that care. I just wanted to ask quickly about the record. We don't seem to have the administrative record in this case. Is that, is, we have certain exhibits that were admitted at, in front of the district court, but we don't have the official administrative record as far as I know, and I check with the clerk's office today. Is it, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what You're I understand. Yeah. You absolutely do not have the administrative record. And it's why don't we, and what's the situation on that, and do we need it or not at all? Absolutely needed. In an APA case, you're supposed to judge the agency's actions based on the administrative record. Where is it, and how do we get it? Well, we would love to produce it, and we are in the process of producing it, but the district court acted before it was able to be produced. How long will it take you to get it to us? I can't give you an, an estimated time. What we're told is it's going to be hundreds of thousands of pages. Because the plaintiffs are challenging actions that took place almost a quarter century ago. So you've been working on it this whole time? For, yes. Since the inception of the district court matter? Or what, when did you start look, working on it? FDA is working hard on it, and I, I don't have an estimate for when it's going to happen. Do you know when you started working on it? I think they started working on it as soon as the case got going. Um, I can't tell you, I cannot give you an exact date, but it's the because... Record. Okay, and so you want us to wait till we have the record? We want you to wait. The plaintiffs asked the district court to wait. The plaintiffs said, please don't enter a preliminary relief. Let's get the administrative record and have a trial on the merits, and then we can determine relief. Okay, so how soon can we get the record? I don't know. I, I, I know it's frustrating, but I don't have a date I can give you. Well, can you supplement? 
can we supplement with the, the 28J letter that tell us when we could have the record and if that's something we could feasibly wait for? I'm not saying we should wait. I don't know whether we need to, but to I let us know when we'll have the record. I that mean, seems like something we would want to know about. Yes, I can, I can go back and talk to my clients and give you whatever answer we can give you. I don't think it's going to be imminent because, again, this is hundreds of thousands of pages. These are actions that took place a quarter century ago, and so they're can in... Can you produce it in stages if you can't produce it all at once? I can talk to my clients, but... Is it a secret? I mean, it's the record, right? No, it's not a secret. It's, it's like in cold storage somewhere because these are things that happened a long time but, ago. But, I mean, but y'all probably have brought it out of storage by now because you've got a big national case going on about it. The agency is working on it. I, don't, I'm, I know it's frustrating. I don't have anything more specific to tell you about that. Okay. Well, let's move on because I think Judge Ho had a question. I've got three questions, if that's all right. Um, I want to talk about the Jester affidavit because uh -huh. uh, you've been challenging the notion that any of these doctors have, either have objections <coughs> or have been involved. I don't, challenge <coughs> I don't challenge that they have objections to abortion and providing abortions. I, we take that as given. Oh, okay, fair enough. Then, then maybe I don't need to, but I'll just go through real quick anyway. Jester, paragraph 17, I treated a woman, uh, Planned Parenthood, New Mexico, chemical abortion, uh, heavy bleeding, 10 weeks gestation, uterine infection. I provided her with antibiotics and performed a DNC. Um, Paragraph 26, I, I am opposed to chemical abortions. I think they are women. Right, but he doesn't say that I viewed the, performing the DNC as performing an abortion. He doesn't say I objected to that procedure. He doesn't say I was forced against my conscience rights to, to uh, execute the procedure. Uh, and so I think it's, again, very speculative that any doctor, any, any identified plaintiff is going to be forced to do anything against their conscious or religious beliefs going forward. We haven't talked about third-party standing. Uh, can we agree that the Dobbs case obviously reached the merits, right? Right. So third-party standing, uh, at least for now, it still exists. Still a thing, yes. Um, but, but in order to invoke third-party standing, you have to first establish your own Article III standing. And in, the, in cases where abortion providers are allowed to assert the rights of third parties and invoke third-party standing, they are challenging laws that operate on them by requiring them or preventing them from doing something. Here, the, so if, you know, if, if doctors who oppose abortion wanted to challenge a law that required them to perform a Pardon me, but I'm sorry to interrupt, but I thought the whole theory of third-party standing in the abortion context is that it's the woman who has the privacy right, not the doctor. It's the woman who has the rights that are being asserted, but the doctor has to have his own injury in order to bring the claim. So the Supreme Court's been very clear about that. The plaintiff has to establish, independently has to establish Article Three standing, and then can raise the rights of a third party. My last question anyway. Uh, Justice Alito, uh, in his uh, recent dissent, or whatever you call it in, in this case, uh, the, 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 the emergency stay, uh, sort of alludes to some, some public chatter about FDA perhaps might not follow court orders. Uh, so I just wanted to give the same opportunity to clarify that I think Chief Justice Roberts gave to the state of Texas in the SBA case, uh, SB8 case. Um, is the FDA intending to follow whatever this court decides, obviously subject to Supreme Court review? I mean, absolutely, right? So whatever this court decide, this decides may be continue to be stayed uh, pending Supreme so Court. Of course, subject to Supreme yes. Court, right? But, right. but the FDA will oblige. But in seeking, will, yes, in seeking relief from the Supreme Court, we submitted an affidavit from Dr. Woodcock um, explaining all the things that the FDA would need to do to comply with the stay panel's decision in this case. I think that's good evidence that we're planning to comply with any court orders. Thank you. Yes. I'm going to give you five more minutes and give everybody five more minutes because we haven't gotten off of standing and you've been appreciate your helpful argument here today. We've kind of thrown a lot at you and we appreciate it so it's helpful. Um, 
I have a couple of questions about how this works with regard to the uh, telemedicine situation. Can, can you help? Because uh, you were saying that the people providing the telemedicine have to be licensed in the jurisdiction or that they have to be uh, appropriate providers so that they're not violating the, the state law. How does that work with um, with and also I want to know how does it work do they have to is it is it video on zoom so they observe the person to see what the gestational stage is how how does all can you walk us through how this actually works absolutely so the REMS that are in place now put in place by the FDA require that anyone who's prescribing this drug any provider whether they be a doctor or nurse midwife physician's assistant, be able to assess gestational age and be able to um, assess for ectopic right. pregnancy. Right, how do they do that, practically speaking? So they do it in by exercising their medical judgment, and FDA defers to them on how to do that. And so sometimes- Do they have the, to see the people, or do they not see the, their face even? Or do they have to look, I mean, how do they decide? So just looking at someone, normally you can't, in that early stage of pregnancy, you yes. can't assess either of those things, right? But you can assess by asking questions. And so, and this has been true for the entire life of Mifepristone. Can this be done via email where I say, my last period was X date and uh, this is my, and therefore I'm this far along and therefore I'm within the rim. And you ask me a follow up if I have complications, diabetes or something. I don't know what the complication would be. And then you, and I say, no, I don't have any of that. And then, it's all just an email exchange? Is that all that's required? How does this work practically? FDA does not dictate the practice of medicine, and so it requires that these doctors have these skills. It requires that they go over all of the risks of um, serious adverse events. They it requires that doctors discuss all the side effects, expected side effects, and, and that they assess for gestational age and ectopic pregnancy, and doctors then practice medicine according to... Or other providers. Or, or other providers, right. But th these are providers who are licensed by law to by state law to prescribe drugs. Are they in their own, in the state where the person is, or are they in a different state? And how does that work? Because we have some some of the affidavits. I mean, not the the, the amicus briefs say that people are using like intermediary uh, addresses and having people dr using a Dropbox basically and having it then sent to a different state that might not allow it. How does it work? So none of that is dictated by the FDA, and none of that is relevant to whether the FDA's determination that this drug is safe and effective with these conditions, in, that this drug is safe and effective with these conditions in place, right? There's a whole it's relevant, isn't it, to whether or not there should be an injunction? Because if it's violating other law, which we have to determine, perhaps, that then we have to decide whether or not it's it's appropriate to enter an injunction or not, and that's one of the factors we would consider. Absolutely not, because if, if people are using the drug in ways that violate state law, and we don't know that, there's no evidence of that in this case, there are some sort of unsupported allegations in amicus briefs, but none of that has anything to do with what the FDA has done. This is, again, an APA challenge to, act, to decisions that the FDA has made, and whatever happens with drugs once they get into people's hands has nothing to do with whether the drug is safe the and FDA effective. Consider uh, crossing state lines or telemedicine across state lines or intermediaries, anything like that, when it revoke the in-person visits or the in-person prescription requirements? So Congress charged the FDA with considering whether a drug is safe and whether it's effective, not with the... the FDA consider the things that Judge Elrod was asking about in terms of the safety of the drug without, with a mail-order regime. They considered the safety of the drug with a mail-order regime, but again, you don't just... Did they consider 
crossing state lines or the idea that someone in California would prescribe things for someone in Mississippi and that there would be go-arounds, workarounds, or whatever may happen. No, because I, I, those things are not relevant to Doesn't safety. Doesn't that relate to the safety of the use of the drug? I don't think it does. I think FDA is charged with determining what is relevant for safety and efficacy. And it's certainly not up to lawyers and judges to come in and say, well. But the FDA didn't consider an important part of the problem. It is our role, correct, to go behind the FDA and determine whether what they did was arbitrary and capricious. But there's no reason to think that's actually a, a, a part of the problem, let alone an important part of the problem. The FDA considered who can prescribe the drug under what conditions, and they authorized those conditions that makes the drug safe and effective. After is, are we, do we only consider the FDA, or is this a, a, you know, a unitary executive sort of situation where we also consider the White House statements that we're going to get these to everybody no matter where they live? Is that part of our inquiry, or is that something we should ignore? I think two answers. First, I, I want to resist your premise that FDA did not, excuse me, the White House did not say we're going to get these drugs to everybody no matter what. It said an important caveat was there, it was in there that they can, they can be used where it's legal to use them. Okay, so I think there's certainly no indication that anyone's trying to do anything unlawful. Um, but so the challenge is... consider the White House. That's, that's, do we consider what... No, because the... Are you a unitary executive upcoming here as part of the FDA? Are you, are you at odds with the White House's approach, or is it, is it irrelevant? What, it's irrelevant, because this is an APA challenge to decisions that FDA has made, right? To, to decisions they made in 2000 and 2016. I'll just say, if I can, I know my time is up. The two, any, any challenge to the 2000 action is clearly time-barred. They waited eight months past their statute of limitations, and so the state panel was right that, that the okay. I have a couple questions. Um, if you need to submit, if, if Danco needed to submit an uh, a SNDA, or whatever you would properly call that, how long would that take, uh, according to your, your folks, and am I allowed to consider affidavits submitted after the fact in determining that? You're talking about if, like, the state panel regime were put into place? Assume, or? yes, that, that the 10, we don't go all the, just for sake of argument, it's not a foreshadowing, but we're having to deal with whether or not the 16 regulations could be. So first I would just put in a plug for saying that the plaintiffs have not made any effort to show how the 2016 changes on their own have caused an injury, and they need to do that. You can't dispense standing and gross. Um, but, you know, I think you can look at the Woodcock Declaration that was submitted in the Supreme Court. It wasn't submitted before because no one, we didn't have any reason to think that there would be an order to put the 2016 regime back in place. And I think it would take probably a matter of months uh, in order to get a new labeling and a new regime set up. But I think it's important to note that if you put the 2016 regime back in place, like the state panel wanted to do, that would require women to take four times as much mifepristone as they take under the current regime. Now, FDA, we think, was right that it was safe and effective to do that, but if the main thrust of the plaintiff's argument is that they shouldn't be taking this drug at all, it's a pretty strange remedy to then require women to take four times as much pending the outcome, the ultimate outcome of the case. I thought the part of the argument is that they should be taking it only under the supervision of a doctor who visits them three times and that a number of other factors. I, th I didn't know it was just on that they shouldn't be taking the drug. I mean, the plaintiffs have multiple claims, right? They want to take the, the drug off the market entirely, but they also have um, various challenges to the changes that were made in 2016. Right, and that's... But I'm saying they would need to show... To that. I'm sorry, what? That would be relevant to that. It would be relevant to that, but they would need to show why those changes have injured them, and they certainly haven't done that. Why, assuming that the drug is on the market, those changes have caused them some cognizable injury that's traceable to FDA. Okay. 
I, does anyone have any further questions? Thank you very much. Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the court, Jessica Ellsworth on behalf of Danko. The district court and the stay panel did not focus on exactly which doctor they concluded had standing to challenge which FDA action. This panel's questions suggest that it is focused on trying to figure out the answer to that question. There must be a specific doctor whose declaration has facts showing a personally and cognizable injury from each challenged FDA action and that this injury is certainly impending. They can't do this. The declarants specify next to no actual treatment of any patient with any level of detail, and in the few cases they give detail, it's care that someone else provided, it's drugs that came from India, those are not FDA-approved drugs, and it's patients who had contraindications. That, again, is not traceable in any way to FDA. From there, the declarants offer nonspecific statements that are untethered to actual facts about what drug a patient took. They often say the patients can't tell me what they took. So we don't know even that it was FDA-approved mifepristone. They don't identify the circumstances under which they took it. Was it the FDA-approved regimen, or was it something else? They don't describe the care that the doctor actually personally provided, or when the event occurred. Was this something in 2003, or was this something in 2016, or was this something in 2020? It was the plaintiff's burden to show standing, and they didn't do that. The stay panel, I think, recognized that no declarant did this, which is why the stay panel looked to the patient agreement form and the black box warning and said, well, those tell us complications from mifepristone must be certain to happen to someone somewhere, and that's enough. But that asked the wrong question. The question is not about whether uh, someone will be injured by mifepristone somewhere sometime. It's about whether any of the doctor declarants face certainly impending injury. The state panel used false math to claim this certainty, which our brief walks through exactly why that math does not in any way relate to the 2016 or the 2021 changes. You don't mean false, necessarily. You, you mean was mistaken, don't you? False in the sense of inaccurate. Yes, that's right. Okay. The, the, the math was actually correct, as in um, if you calculate 2 to 7% times the number of women who have taken mifepristone, that would give you the number of women who the label suggests have had an incomplete treatment. But what is false is to equate incomplete treatment with a trip to the ER. There is no declarant who says that. There is nothing in the record that says that. Um, and so, so that's where the inaccuracies come in. There's no link to these doctors. I have studied the declarations, and it certainly sounds like this panel has as well. There are two declarants who I think identify any specific care they gave to a patient with enough facts that might show that it was an FDA-approved mifepristone taken in accordance with FDA-approved regimen. And that's paragraph 23 of Dr. Scott's declaration and paragraph 17 of Dr. Jester's uh, declaration, which, which you referenced, Judge Ho. Of course, those two declarants practice in Texas and in Indiana. So even if they alleged one patient that they actually cared for at some time in the past, 
We now live in a world where the availability of abortion in Texas and Indiana is quite different than it was prior to Dobbs. That matters when what this court is tasked with doing is determining whether there is a certainly impending injury. There are three other declarants who offer specifics about a patient who took a drug. Dr. Francis identifies a patient who took a drug from India. That doesn't help. Dr. Wozniak, in paragraph 24, identifies a patient who was told she could not have a medication abortion because she was on blood thinners and obtained mifepristone anyway. That doesn't help them. And Dr. Johnson says that some patient took an unidentified abortion pill and then needed a blood transfusion. And once a patient had severe pain but didn't know what she had taken. That's it. Those are the only specifics you have. The remaining declaration paragraphs, and, and you've uh, identified some of them in the discussion this morning, offer only generalized statements. There are no time details. There are no details about a conscious objection that the doctor tried to make and was prevented from making. And there's no acknowledgment of the changed law. This particularly matters when we think about the fact that the 2000 approval challenge is time barred. The stay panel, I think, was exactly right on that. And the appellees uh, say next to nothing to refute the state panel's analysis about why reopener does not apply and why equitable tolling does not apply. So that leaves uh, a need for a declarant to identify certainly impending harm from a 2016 change. Go back to the reopening uh, discussion for a moment. Uh, I assume you're familiar with the Sierra Club DC Circuit case? Yes, sir. Right. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, the theory there being that you restart the clock the six-year clock, if the regulations have changed in a way that uh, alter the financial incentive, alter the incentives, uh, significantly alters the stakes of judicial review, uh, changes the calculus for, for a plaintiff. Uh, why is that not the case here? I think it's for exactly the reason the state panel identified. These plaintiffs already filed a citizen petition in 2000. The stakes were sufficient. plaintiffs after that, aren't there? You're right that some of them carried forward, but there were some participants in the, remember my dates here, some in the 2019 round who did not appear in the 20, sorry, 2002 round. That, that is. That argument doesn't apply to, to that group. So, so I don't think it changes the question about whether there was a sufficient stake. Um, there was a change to the stakes, right, a change in the stakes, because. You don't think the mail issue is not a dramatic change? You don't think the going from seven to 10 weeks is dramatic change. You don't think going from three visits to just one without a doctor? So Your Honor, as, as I understand the appellee's argument about Sierra Club, it only relates to the 2016 changes. Their argument about 2021 is simply based on this reference to a full review of the mifepristone REMS that occurred in 2021. And, and of course- My only point is that the stakes have changed dramatically. Your Honor, I, I don't know that that's true. The, is, if you read through these declarants, um, their, their statements in all of the declarations, their real com There's no big difference between the 2000 regime and the 2016 regime. Why did you all go to the Supreme Court? <laughs> I think there is a big deal, right? There's a lot at stake. What, whoever is right, we can't deny this is a big stakes issue. So I'm not, I'm not really understanding how this is small stakes now. 
the question is whether any of these declarants would have um, seen it as a different question about whether to sue FDA over the fact that a non-physician prescriber can prescribe the drug or that an inpatient appointment um, is not required when they would have otherwise said, oh, well, now we need to challenge this 2000 approval. These declarants all make very clear they are opposed to abortion drugs, period. In fact, they're opposed to abortion, period. There is nothing that any of them have identified that shows that they found a different calculus when they got to 2016 or 2021. And, and you know, I think time sort of is, a, is an indicator of this. After the 2016 changes, they waited three years to file a citizen petition. Is it your position that going back to the 2015 regime, whether we're in the 2015 regime or in the post-2016 regime, no big deal either way. It's not much of a difference. So, no, Your Honor. You're not saying that. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. I think it, there's a, a, a very significant difference in. Significant. Yes, very significant. And, and That's all I'm saying. Yes, I, I think it's a very significant difference. But the question is about whether the stakes for these plaintiffs somehow changed in a way. And they have not identified any way in which the stakes for them changed. Well, I think it, they'll have to do this more often because the, with the lack of safeguards to make sure that the person gets the proper care or doesn't take it when it's ill-advised, that, 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 they, that they will have to just do it more often is, is something they say between the 16 and the 10. Isn't that an allegation that the plaintiffs make? I think they make three allegations, Your Honor, about the difference in Is that one of them? One of them is that there's a later gestational age that's wrapped in post-2016 and that that could lead to um, additional uh, instances of an incomplete treatment. But what that ignores is that what FDA found, and this is documented uh, repeatedly through the hundreds of pages that are in the record before you about FDA's review, is that with the new um, dosing regimen that was put in place in 2016, even for those later stages, between 49 days and 70 days, the rate of complete treatment was higher than the rate of complete treatment originally approved in 2000. In other words, it got safer. Um, Can I ask you a question about that? Is there any difference, you know, because the, your client's drug is the nutrition element, the progesterone element that for, the, for the fetus, and uh, that that's what's cut off before um, the other drug is, is, uh, is the one that causes the the fetus to be expelled. Um, given the fact that the nutrition is not, it's not being as high, it's 400 to 200 difference, is that causing any difference in the, um, whether the fetus is already demised before the pushing, the, the expelling, have they, have they shown any differences in the results on that? And does that, have they shown absolutely none? It doesn't matter whether it's 200 or 400. I'm not aware of anything in the record that addresses that particular question um, or, or that FDA looked at that particular question. I think the, the um, question before FDA was whether this new dosing regimen was safe and effective. And what FDA did was look at the complete treatment rates 
that occurred using this, and it analyzed dozens of studies involving tens of thousands of women and found that the rates of complete treatment were, were even higher than they had been originally. The other thing in 2016 that they found was that an additional dose of misoprostol would resolve 90% of the situations for women where they didn't have a complete treatment in that first 14-day period. the rest of the tissue or whatever. That's right. It would avoid the... It would avoid the need to go to an emergency room. It would avoid the need for surgical follow-up care. Can you, do you agree with the FDA that it would just take a few months to get your situation, uh, to make sure that you got your labeling correct? It would take a number of months, I think. Just a few, but I mean, wouldn't it take that long while there's a stay in effect, while the, all the briefing keeps going on in this case? So you could get that all ready to go, and so you're, how would you have an injury and the reason, only reason I ask is because we have to consider this injunctive relief question and whether you're harmed because you're out of business, which is certainly a harm if you're out of business, or whether you can just pivot to something that's already been approved and you're not really affected because the whole thing has stayed in the meantime and that gives you enough time to get it all pivoted. Your Honor, it's very tricky to determine how we would go back to FDA with an SNDA that says you should, um, here is all, first of all, the, the clinical data that would support making all of these changes. But it was already approved, so, it, and the labels already exist. Well, there, there is a label that was used during that time period, that is correct, but it is not a we label that is on. Safe during that unsafe during that time period, of course you don't. That's right, but the process of going back to FDA, this is not like a light switch that you can flip off and flip on. And That's if you- You have several months, probably, Yes, Your Honor. Uh, so how can you show that, on, I'm trying to decide on if we were to get to that, and I'm not foreshadowing again, whether or not you're going to be out of business, which would be a big, big harm on your side of the ledger, or whether you're just inconvenienced slightly while you get some work done. Your Honor, I do want to be clear that because we are here now on the merits as opposed to a stay, Danko does not need to show irreparable harm. The question is simply whether we are harmed. Um, it is the plaintiffs who have the obligation to show irreparable harm. And particularly where their declarants are in Texas and Indiana, it is very difficult to see how the situation Aren't on the we ground. Do you consider harm to the other parties also? Yes, Your Honor. Harm to the other getting at. Yes, and I agree. And I think the Danko declaration that was submitted in the Supreme Court alongside the one from FDA documents uh, that essentially this would remove mifepristone from lawful distribution in the United States for a, for a period of months. Is that even properly before us to consider under the rules? So, Your Honor, I, I think... You submitted it to a different court that's higher in every way than us. Or can we go say go look in their record and say, well, we don't have it here, but I, we can borrow it? I think at a minimum, this court could take judicial notice of it. But in any event, it grew out of the stay panel's, uh, I think, correct determination that the 2000 approval was time barred. And so the only question at that point became a different one than had been the situation in the district court when the 2000 approval was on the table. If I could just. One more question. I'm, I'm, I'll give you a little bit time, but I, I do have a question about GenBioPro. You may not have a comment on it, but I'm very confused as to why they're not intervener or in the party if they say that it affects them in lockstep like it affects you or your client because of the same approvals. That's what the amicus brief. 
but that's a very odd amicus brief because they seem to be actually saying they're having concrete injuries in this case. Uh, so that, do you have any comment on that or how we're supposed to figure that out and what to do about the generic situation? I do not have a comment on what their litigation strategy may or, not have, may, or may not have been. No. They are not my client. I can I tell you. Can we, whatever we do, we just do. Is that what you're, I mean. I can tell you that Danko intervened in this case because we view this case as essentially existential uh, to our continued existence. Speaking of your client, uh, do you mind if I? Sure. Uh, your client is Danko, not Population Council? That's correct. Uh, I, I'm curious, and maybe this is not uh, necessarily directly attributable to you all, but Population Council is the one who originally sought the application. That's correct. What do you make of the fact that Population Council seems to have agreed that Subpart H is the wrong way to go? Your Honor, I think the Subpart H question in this case is a purely academic one and has been since 2011 um, when FDA approved the REMS that all the use restrictions currently right. operate under. The difference under. between approving restrictions on uh, an approved drug and approving the drug. Right, subpart H, as I understand it, and I'm not an FDA expert, but I want to hear your argument, uh, subpart H is, the, is one way to get approval from the FDA. It's an accelerated, uh, less rigorous format, as I understand it. And Population Council, who's maybe not your client, but who brought Danko in, I thought said that subpart H would be unlawful, unnecessary, undesirable, we ask FDA to consider. Uh, subpart H, I'm sure you know, requires uh, that only for serious, deadly illnesses. Uh, as Population Council rightly says, pregnancy is not an illness. So. Your Honor. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> may I uh, correct a couple things about your understanding of, of FDA law? An approval uh, is under Section 355, um, and 355D in particular sets out when FDA should approve a new drug application. FDA. Uh, Re by regulation had uh, promulgated a rule for subpart H for drugs that allowed it to approve a drug under 355 but place use restrictions on that drug. Congress... The idea, I, I think, is very... It's an understandable idea. When you have cancer, AIDS, deadly d diseases, and, and you want to give people a, the chance to, to take drugs uh, sooner rather than later, you have an accelerated process. So there are two parts to sub- obviously is why does this, why do you need to use that process here? Does it even fit given that pregnancy is almost certainly not an illness? There are two parts to subpart H. One is acceleration. That was not used at all in this case. So the accelerated part of subpart H is irrelevant. Uh, the other part of subpart H relates to use restrictions. That use restriction authority was subsequently codified by Congress in the statutory section 355-1. It gave FDA what's called REMS authority for, sub, for drugs that previously had had restrictions through subpart H, for biologics that had had restrictions through subpart E, for other manufacturers who had simply agreed to impose restrictions in something called risk maps. This is set out in the Federal Register notice talking about um, FDA uh, adopting this, the REMS for these, for these products after Congress's enactment. And so since 2011, when Danko's REMS submission was approved by FDA, we, we know that FDA used the 355 approval, 355D, 
and it has now coupled that with use restrictions under its REMS authority. Th that just makes this subpart H question, I think, an, an academic one at this I point. I don't understand, and I, I, this is an important point on the merits, so I want to make sure I under, understand it. You're referring to the 2011 FDA letter. The 2011 FDA letter refers to the approval being under subpart H. The 2016 subsequent statement by the FDA re rejecting the 2002 petition says the same thing, it, that, that the approval uh, of RU-46 was based on uh, subpart H. Uh, I think they said the same thing in 2021. I think they said the same thing in the brief to this court. It's, it's all about subpart H. So the REMS are, are, are to, I, I totally agree with you. The REMS uh, are, are subject to the 2007 legislation, uh, the, the enactment. Right, and, and the only H is very much still part of this case. I, I disagree, Your Honor, and and I think the FDA counsel can um, correct that as well in the rebuttal to explain that 355D is the statutory mechanism for approval, um, and, and that is the only statutory mechanism for approval of a new drug application. I would note that the all these statements. I mean, maybe the FDA is just was sloppy in its language. Maybe that's the theory, but I'm looking at the language multiple. 2011, 2016, 2021, the brief in this court, all say the 2000 approval was based under subpart H. And I think that references the fact that there were use restrictions through subpart H that were imposed as part of the approval, but, but the approval itself. So we still have to ask the question, does subpart H, uh, is this uh, drug eligible for subpart H treatment, given that subpart H, as I understand it, is limited to serious illnesses? So, Pregnancy is not a serious illness. So, Your Honor, again, I, I think there are very good arguments, and we walk through them, and FDA walks through them, as to why subpart H was correctly used, but, but it is uh, truly irrelevant. Is it a serious illness? So, in the preamble to the subpart H regulation... It's already Mother's Day. Were we celebrating illness? No, Your Honor, but FDA used the words illness, condition, disease interchangeably in its subpart H uh, regulation when it was promulgating it. And, and the sites to that are, are in the brief. I'm sorry, I, I want to make sure. It, what do you mean interchangeably? It, it, it used the words as though they referred to the same thing. And it, disease, illness, and condition. And pregnancy, and I don't think the plaintiffs have disputed this. 21 CFR 314 uh, sorry, dot four, 500. Serious or life threatening illnesses. The term is illnesses. I agree, Your Honor, that is the language that is used in the um, regulation itself, but as I said in the preamble um, and in the discussion of the comments that were submitted in, in conjunction with that rulemaking, uh, there is discussion about it applying to conditions, and it has applied to other uh, things that I think would, you would not typically think of as uh, a serious illness, like, like acne and infertility and, and other drugs that the agency, again, all prior to 2008, um, it, that the agency decided should have use restrictions when they came on the market. Did you have something you wanted to add? Because we've been asking you quite a few questions. I, I have just um, two points I, I want to make, and they relate to questions that you asked, Judge Elrod. The, the first is on the record and the question about how long it will take the record to be produced. One thing that I think is important about how this court um, answers this question is that the scope of the record here will turn on significant, in significant part on what actions these plaintiffs have standing to assert and were timely asserted. So if, for example, this court can... Can we get the record first and then answer the question? I mean, that's normally you send us the record, well, the agency, we get that at the beginning of the case or else we pre-dermit the record if it's a case that's not, you know, in some immigration cases we don't ever get the record, but if we need the record, we need the record. 
So I don't think the record bears on standing and timeliness. And in a typical APA case, Judge Elrod, what usually happens is that the, the government or the government and an intervener file a motion to dismiss on these threshold issues, and the record only gets produced as to whatever portion of the case so is— So you don't think we necessarily need anything else than what we have? Not to decide what's before you right now. Do you have something else? I, I, yes. The other, the other very quick point I wanted to make was that you had asked a couple questions about both telemedicine and about a rural patient who might uh, go to the ER. And I wanted to point out on that, again, this relates to standing, none of these declarants, there is not a single statement in any of the declarations before you that identifies a declarant who treated a patient after that patient received FDA-approved mifepristone through a telemedicine appointment. There is not a single declarant who identifies a patient they treated because they had to because it was a rural patient who had no other option other than to go to an ER. So it all comes back to what's in these declarations. The court needs to read them carefully, and when it does, I think it will conclude that there is no standing, um, at least as the panel concluded as to the um, 2016 and 2021. That there is no timely assertion. I have one more question, Ms. Ellsworth, and you've been extremely helpful. And I want to just say we have read the declarations as you already acknowledged, but we'll read them again. Um, the, you, don't, you know, I know this case was briefed and argued under really an extremely expedited timeline. It was very difficult for everybody involved, and we appreciate the hard work everyone's done. Your filings have been excellent. However, I am concerned about some rather unusual remarks in the filings. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, and these are remarks that I don't normally see, or we don't normally see in uh, briefing from very esteemed counsel um, that talk about the district court, where there are comments that the district court defied longstanding precedent, the court's injunction, uh, was an unprecedented judicial assault, the court's relentless one-sided narrative, uh, the non-expert court, equally groundless, bending every settled rule. This is much more um, kind of remarks towards the district court that we normally don't see from learned counsel. And I'm wondering if you would have had more time and not been under a rush and probably exhausted from this whole process, would those have been statements that would have been included in your brief, or do you want to say anything about that? Your Honor, I think those statements reflect um, our view that the district court court was very far outside the bounds of so established. you think it's appropriate to attack the district court personally in the case in that way? Your Honor. Than just the rulings. I don't think that those uh, remarks, any of them, were intended as any sort of personal attack. They were an attack on the analysis and but the But you can reasoning. say we disagree with the analysis. We think it's all wrong for these reasons. But normally you don't say the court ruling is an unprecedented judicial assault. That's an unusual remark, don't you think? It, this is, has been an unusual case okay. for, for reasons that you identified. you think that that that's identified. appropriate, then I, I just wanted to give you a chance to, to, to I, comment on that. I certainly think with more time we may have uh, ratcheted down some of that, and, and I appreciate Your Honor's comment on that very much. Um, this is a case that has been litigated at breakneck speed. And I understand that, and that's, why I, that's what I thought originally, but I'm hearing from you that maybe you think that was appropriate. And let, me, let me follow up on that, given that 
you're saying it's appropriate. I'm going to focus on a slightly different part of it. The language that we're talking about is unprecedented judicial assault on a careful regulatory process. This is echoing some of the comments we heard earlier from FDA counsel. I don't understand this theme that the FDA can do no wrong. First of all, you'll agree, that is basically the narrative you all are putting forth. Nobody should ever question the FDA. This is unprecedented. The FDA, just last month, in response to litigation about the drug, a subpart H drug for pregnant women, Lacaina, FDA withdrew it. In response to a New York Times headline, FDA rushed a drug for preterm birth. Did FDA put speed over science? Just last year, Senator Murray, chair of the Senate Health Committee, criticized the FDA for, quote, unacceptable, longstanding food safety failures. FDA is being blamed for the opioid crisis. Your Honor. In a Journal of Ethics article, how FDA failures contributed to the opioid crisis. None of this has anything to do with this case. What I'm trying to say is, why are we, it's a theme that you all are putting forth that is completely unnecessary. We are allowed to look at the FDA just like we're allowed to look at any agency. That's the role of the courts. Absolutely, Your Honor. I think some of that may have been prompted by the district court itself saying that it was second-guessing FDA. And so to the extent that part of our theme is that a court is not to second-guess FDA, that is established in, I think, every type of agency APA review. FDA approved this drug in 2000. According to the AMA Journal, you tell me if it's correct or not, but according to the AMA Journal article, of all the novel therapeutics approved by the FDA that decade, one-third of them have had safety issues. I don't have any comment on that, Your Honor. We have two amicus briefs from the U.S. Medical Association and the Association of American Physicians detailing numerous FDA problems, numerous problems with FDA-approved drugs. Do you know how many FDA drugs have been recalled in the history of the agency? I do not know the answer to that question, Your Honor. I know that we have a number of briefs from former FDA officials, from seven former FDA commissioners who served under both Democratic and Republican administrations, documenting the very significant harms to FDA that would come from— Did they talk about PES? They talk about the harms that would come from a— PES was approved by the FDA for five decades, approved for prescription to pregnant women for decades. Turns out it's carcinogenic. And, Your Honor, that's exactly why there is adverse event reporting, and FDA monitors the— But you all got rid of adverse reporting, the non-fatal ones. Your Honor, that is— There are a lot of problems here. If I could just mention one thing on the adverse event reporting, Judge Elrod, and I promise to be very brief, because I think that is a tremendously inaccurate statement to make. Mifepristone remains subject to the exact same adverse event reporting regimen that every other drug from FDA is subject to, plus it still has some mandatory reporting. So it is wildly inaccurate to say that there— I mean, certainly it's more moderate, right? For the non-fatal adverse events, it's only annual or periodic rather than before. Why would you do that right when you were expanding its use to potentially—maybe it's not more dangerous, but potentially more dangerous. Certainly the plaintiffs think it's more dangerous. Why deprive the world of that information at that very moment? Because what— It's a very pro-science, pro-information, pro-intellectual curiosity position. 
if in the hundreds of pages where FDA explained exactly why it was doing that, that are in this record, what we see is that FDA looked at each one of those changes and said there is zero difference to patient safety based on many clinical studies involving tens of thousands of people. So if, if you as FDA have, uh, I believe there are 90 citations in the uh, CIDR clinical review that's in the record, 90 different references. Any all, studies that looked at all of them in toto? Uh, there was never a request from the plaintiffs. Any studies that looked at all of these changes in toto, the cumulative effect together? There are a number of studies that look at multiple aspects of the all changes. All of them in toto. There is no requirement for a REMS modification to do that. In not what I asked you. I asked, are there any studies that looked at these changes in toto? And the answer to that is no, but there is no legal requirement to do that under the under 355-1, which sets out FDA's REMS authority. In fact, you don't even need clinical data at all to make a REMS modification. Thank you very much, Your Honors. Thank you. May it please the court. My name is Erin Hawley, and I represent Appellees. The FDA has talked a lot this morning about deference, but courts do not defer to agencies when they ignore congressional commands, nor when they put politics above women's health. And that's precisely what happened here. Confronted with a drug that could not otherwise be approved, FDA marketed mifeprestone by labeling pregnancy and illness. Then FDA stripped this drug of virtually every safeguard it had once deemed necessary in order to sell the drug, despite zero studies showing that this complete deregulation was safe. Finally, FDA allowed for mail-order abortions, contrary to federal law and common sense, and an end run around the promise of Dobbs that states may protect their legitimate interest in unborn life and women's health by regulating abortion. For at least three reasons, plaintiffs in this case have standing to challenge these actions. First, because of FDA's unlawful approval and deregulation of mifeprestone, plaintiff doctors have been forced to participate in and complete elective abortions contrary to their consciences. What's your best excerpt for that proposition? Yes, Your Honor, I think we have several. If we look at the conscience harms at a high level, uh, let's take Dr. Francis's declaration at page ROA 269. Dr. Francis says that plaintiffs with plaintiff doctors with ethical, medical, and conscious objections to abortion will, quote, be forced to participate in completing unfinished elective chemical abortions. Where is any evidence that they've done that in the past? So Dr. Francis herself talks about a specific example. Um, that example is also at 269 and 270. Dr. Scop talks about completing 12 surgeries, as Your Honor noted, that um, were required her to take embryos, fetuses, as well as pregnancy tissue uh, from the mother's womb. I think that the disconnect. Go ahead and finish your sentence, but I, I do want to follow up on Scop. Sure, sure. I think the disconnect here, Your Honors, really comes down to the way that FDA uh, and Danko are um, defining the conscience harm. If you look at the declarations here, uh, declarants are, are not alleging a harm because they're 
uh, forced to provide an abortion. Certainly they would consider that a harm, but their conscience harm is much broader. They allege that they feel complicit uh, in an elective abortion by being forced to complete that procedure. Uh, Danko and FDA says it doesn't quibble uh, with the sincerity uh, of these conscience harms, but they are misdefining it. It's not just the abortion. It doesn't matter to plaintiff doctors whether the child has died 30 minutes before or 30 minutes after that doctor has to provide a DNC. Uh, that makes them feel complicit and violates their conscience. Fair enough. I, I get the complicity point, but just so I understand the debate that we're having today. Yes, Your Honor. A uh, fair amount of t time has been spent on SCOP paragraph 17. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, if I understand uh, opposing counsel's argument, and hopefully we'll hear more on reply to make sure I have not misunderstood it, I think they're basically making a passive voice point, right, which is I have cared for at least a dozen women who have required surgery. And I think their notion is that was sort of deliberate passive voice on, on uh, Dr. Scop's part. Can you clarify this for us? Absolutely not, Your Honor. Dr. Scop's not a lawyer. Uh, she's an emergency room physician who testified that she has often treated women suffering from chemical abortions. She testified that she has treated dozens uh, of women, and she also testified that she has cared for and treated uh, as well as uh, performing herself uh, those DNC abortions. I'm sorry. She has performed them. Yes, absolutely, Your Honor. Where? Where is this testimony? So I think we have to look at a record, that paragraph 17. It does say care for, um, but again, Dr. Scop's not a lawyer. It's sort of passive. Where did you said, you just told Judge Ho that she's testified to all this. Where, it, where would we find that? Where, I mean, I don't. Absolutely, Your Honor. It's, it's in her declaration. Uh, so her declaration notes a few key things. Her declaration notes, it says that she's often treated women suffering complications for chem chemical abortion gone wrong. It notes that she's treated dozens of women. It also notes that she has cared for, um, as well as done herself, uh, a dozen uh, DNC or suction aspiration abortions requiring her to remove fetuses, embryos, and pregnancy tissue. If we're going to parse her words, that last phrase guarantees that, that she herself performed those. She wouldn't know what was involved in those procedures if she were just talking about some colleague. Uh, in addition, she testifies that in five instances, she was required to either perform blood transfusions or intravenous antibiotics, sometimes both. Um, if we're look, talking about Summers or Clapper or New York versus Department of Commerce or this court's case in ET versus Paxton, there is no question that there's a substantial risk of harm uh, that that might occur again. Well, what of what the opposite counsel's point that she nowhere says, I was forced to do this in contravention of my conscience? In other words, did she lodge an objection? Was she required to lodge an objection before invoking this? Or did she just do it because it was an emergent situation where the patient needed care? That's different, isn't it? So, so Your Honor, I think the state panel correctly noted uh, that these doctors are not supposed to choose between their livelihood and their conscious objections. As you noted, these are emergency room doctors faced with emergent situations. Uh, Dr. Spot notes uh, that this, the emergency situation may force her to end the life of a human child in the womb. Well, but what, what about handing it off to another doctor who doesn't have the same objection? Uh, I'm not sure, Your Honor. There, substantiate that. So, so I think that the, the doctors here feel compelled to treat women. Um, they also have a sincere conscious objection. And, and I don't think the nature of a conscious objection would require them um, to say, I, I'm not going to do this. I think that they can uh, still complain uh, about the treatment and say it violates um, my conscience rights to be forced to be complicit uh, in an elective abortion. So the approval of any drug that triggers a conscience concern in the part of a doctor gives that doctor standing to bring a suit? 
and challenge the approval? No, Your Honor. I think there are. Where do we draw the line? So I think there are a number of things that really differentiate this case from defendants' parade of horribles. Uh, first, as Dobbs recognized, abortion is different. Um, they're talking about ending the life uh, of an unborn child. Uh, second, uh, this case uh, is much different from a doctor who uh, claims a harm from treating an asthmatic child or a gunshot victim, um, because here the actions are directly traceable to the FDA's unlawful actions in approving and deregulating mifeprestone. In fact, Your Honor, these harms are far from unexpected. If you look at the record on page 1592, this is the initial approval, the FDA acknowledges that emergency room doctors are going to be part of the solution in cleaning up the mess that's left for women suffering consequences of chemical abortion. They acknowledge this because they say, we're not requiring, at that point, doctors, that, that requirement's even been removed. But at that point, we're not gonna require doctors to have surgical ability, and we're not gonna require them to have admitting privileges. Instead, we're going to allow them to refer to emergency rooms. And that brings up uh, another point uh, that my friends on the other side mentioned, that the uh, adverse events here is less than 1%. I'm not sure where they're getting that number. Maybe it's from fares, which there's all sorts of problems with. But if you look at the current medication guide for mifeprestone, the current one updated in January of 2023, what that medication guide says at table two is that between 2.6 and 4.9% of women will present to the emergency room. Those numbers match onto the numbers found by the state panel, and they, as the state panel reasonably found, it makes it reasonably certain that these plaintiffs will end up with women suffering from chemical abortion gone wrong. A standing does not require that an additional woman uh, show up on the emergency room door, especially when so many women already have. Does it matter if it's for an emergency life-threatening situation or if they've gone just because they're they don't know what to do or they're confused does that matter in any way so it might your honor i mean in the prior circumstance you might be able to call in another doctor um, but these women there, there's testimony in the doc, in the record about a doctor uh, who treated a patient who'd gone out of state to obtain chemical abortion drugs, uh, passed out on the, in the Uber on the way home, uh, and was unconscious by the time she arrived at the emergency room. Is it accurate that none of these, uh, none of these doctors refer to any telemedicine problems? Uh, absolutely not, Your Honor. There is testimony after testimony that talks about how the FDA's deregulatory efforts have increased the number of women they're seeing. In fact, if you look at Dr. Francis' declaration, what she says is that during the time period when a federal judge has stayed enforcement of the in-person dispensing requirement, she saw emergency room visits go up. But that, I believe, is at ROA 267. You're making the predictable argument, uh, the predictable under Department of Commerce. Um, you have a government policy change, certain responses are predictable in the population. Yes, Your Honor, but I would distinguish that from Summers. All Summers is about is it says reasonably that you can't uh, assert. I, I apologize if I said Summers. I meant Debar Department of Commerce. Is yes, Your Honor. That's correct. And indeed, you know, more than predictable, I, I think it's expected, uh, the FDA itself expected, uh, these emergency doctors would, as the state panel found, have to clean up the aftermath. Um, for the records. I'm sorry. Do you agree with counsel opposite that to show third-party standing, the doctors have to demonstrate Article III standing independently? 
I, I think that's an open question um, from the Supreme Court's decision in June Medical. I think they clearly do that here. Um, and they also clearly satisfy the other requirements uh, for third party standing. Um, the, as uh, Justice Alito pointed out in his dissent in that case, abortion providers usually spend two to three minutes with a patient. Uh, the declarations here detail hours uh, spent with individual patients uh, caring for them. Um, in addition, if abortion providers can challenge regulations that are meant to protect women from abortion providers, uh, certainly uh, abor uh, the pa excuse me, the doctors who care for these patients uh, should have third party standing as well. You disagree with the state panels footnote four. I think so, Your Honor. When you look at that footnote in Dobbs, uh, the cases that are cited, um, the Newdow case and others, really concern the situation in which there's a conflict of interest. Um, and I, I would probably agree uh, with that dissent that there are there is a conflict of interest when abortion providers say we don't need surgical ambulatory requirements. Um, you know, Louisiana and Texas both said that was necessary to protect women's health. Abortion providers came in and said no, it's not. Um, I think that's a conflict of interest. Um, in this case, however, we do not have a conflict of interest because the women injured by mifeprestone, as well as the doctors who treat them, uh, are all suffering the harm caused by that drug. We've been talking mostly about the 2016, mm -hmm. but what about 2021? Is that not moot? That's a great question, Your Honor. And no, when you look closely at Danco and FDA's briefs, what they say is that the 2021 non-enforcement decision um, is moot. Um, we would agree with that, that the pandemic um, ended, I, th I think it was on May 11th. Um, and, and so uh, that just- not entitled to any relief on the 2021 non-enforcement decision in December of 2021, is that correct? I, I think that is likely moot. What is not moot, Your Honor, is our challenge to the 2021 petition decision. And the petition decision- Opposite time, uh, the month in December. Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no worries, Your Honor. So the petition decision uh, is clearly has a live issue with the case, in this case. Uh, mootness occurs uh, when there's not a live controversy, uh, just like a defendant cannot uh, cease conduct voluntarily uh, in order to trigger the mootness doctrine. Neither can the FDA pass a subsequent regulation in 2000, or excuse me, subsequent RIMS requirement in 2023, which effectuates the 2020 final determination. But you didn't um, actually argue much about 2023. You know, I know that it's in the panel, the motions panel opinion and a footnote there with a citation to um, the MPP case, I believe. Sure. Uh, but is, um, but d did you plead or argue anything about 2023 and should we be relying on that in any way? So, so no, Your Honor, what I'm saying is that the 2021 petition decision, so, so in 2019, uh, plaintiffs challenged the 2016 uh, RIMS major changes. Right. They also asked the FDA to retain in-person dispensing. I think advocates have been saying, you know, we should take this away. So they asked the FDA to retain in-person dispensing. Um, into December of 2021, the FDA denied that part of the petition. Um, and then th that, that claim is absolutely live. We are challenging FDA's determination of allowing mail-order abortions. And the 2023 um, RIMS effectuates that final decision. It was required by that 2020. Not the blanket code. COVID, but the denial of the yes. 2019, which occurred in 2021. Absolutely, Your Honor. So that claim is very much alive. But this not. Is the voluntary, sorry. You go ahead. Well, I, I would think the voluntary yes. cessation doctrine yes. 
totally takes care of this, right? Absolutely, Your Honor. Not only not promising you this is not going to recur, they've codified it permanently. Absolutely, Your Honor. It would recur forever. It would be like an agency saying you can't do X, um, someone challenging it, uh, the agency promulgating a new regulation saying you can't do X, which still governs individual conduct. Right. So, absolutely. I guess while I have the floor, uh, I want to ask about the subpart H, because there was some discussion earlier about how uh, the accelerated approval was not used. Do you want to respond to that? Uh, my understanding of the record, Your Honor, is that's completely incorrect. In the letter that the FDA sent the Population Council, they said that the drug could not be approved but for subpart H. So my understanding of the entire record is that because the drug was a serious life-threatening illness, which FDA itself was not prepared to um, approve without post-marketing restrictions, the only avenue available to it was subpart H. And Your Honor is absolutely correct that that subpart H approval is still at play. Uh, Section 355.1 is only a RIMS provision. Um, the FDA AAA amendments um, grandfathered uh, those subpart H approvals in, um, but, but the, the post-marketing restrictions, not the approval. So, so the relevant approval is still 2000. Just to be clear, I think what they were suggesting is not that they didn't use subpart H at all, mm -hmm. but that they used a, a different part of subpart H, not the accelerated approval part. And you're saying that's incorrect? So, so it, it, no, Your Honor, I, I th it's a true that I don't think they actually did accelerate approval, even though subpart H was intended to do that for cancer and HIV drugs and the like. Um, but, but it's absolutely true that they used the part of subpart H that required them to find it was an illness. But it took four years. It wasn't one of these several-month ones like the... Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's, and the leukemia, et cetera. Correct, Your Honor. None of our argument um, relies on the, the long-term, you know, how long it took. Um, rather, that they used a procedure probably incorrectly um, because, because it was the only thing available to them in order to find both a pregnancy with an illness. The second problem with that, of course, um, is there were no studies that looked to see whether uh, medication abortion or chemical abortion had therapeutic benefits over surgical abortion. And the I do have a question, though. It goes to, it's about what Judge Ho has been talking about with you. I am confused that why FDA's formal approval in 2011 with a new risk management strategy didn't cure any error as to subpart H, to, and so why wasn't that good enough? Um, because, Your Honor, I think it would be, I think FDA's argument here is that Congress codified the approval of mifepristone. And I think there's no way to glean that sort of specific detail saying that, that Congress itself actually approved mifepristone. That, what, what Congress did instead uh, was Congress say that we are grandfathering in these other, these other subpart H things. They gave the agency 180 days to submit a new RIMS. So it was just a stopgap measure for all of the drugs. This, this general stopgap grandfathering provision in no way approved any particular RIMS. Well, the FDA did not not formally approve mifepristone with a new risk mitigation strategy in 2011? The FDA did not formally do that? I don't believe so, Your Honor. I think what they did is approve RIMS. They, they didn't, the, the, the approval and the RIMS are, are, are different. Uh, three, one's under 355 and one's under 355-1. Well, I'll check the record. Thank you. Sure. How is your challenge to the 2000 approval timely? So through the reopening doctrine that this court recognized in Texas versus Biden and the D.C. Circuit has recognized uh, in a number of cases. So agree on the reopening doctrine, is it untimely? So let me convince you on the reopening doctrine. When we look at 2016, 
And I'll ask the same question again when you're done. But go ahead. So, so when we look at 2016, the agency itself labeled those changes major. It also at ROA 703 labeled those changes interrelated. Um, so it strips away all of those changes. Um, and under the statutory section 355.1, each and every one of those nine stripped away changes was required for the FDA to determine whether it was safe. Well, but so I, I get that, but they also have 15, 16 years of safety data, use data. It's more widespread post-approval. So is every time the FDA going to relax some prior restriction or requirement or safeguard based on history of performance, does that then mean we're here on a reopening issue? I mean, how do you draw that line? Uh, absolutely not, Your Honor. There are only 76 drugs that are subject to REMS. Um, and I think if you look we'll at the- we be here 75 more times. Possibly. Um, <laughs> but, Possibly but, not. Um, so, so but, but if I could convince you on another thing, um, the DC Circuit's uh, also says to look at context. Um, and this would be something that was not true of the other 75 drugs. When you look at the- question, the approval, or the underlying approval of the drug in 2000. So I- 16 or 19 or 21 or 23, did they? So your honor, on the very same day that they stripped away the changes, made the major changes, they also denied the citizen petition, which they said they'd been quote, carefully considering for 14 years. Um, that was made by the very same de decision maker. Defendant Woodcock signed the um, petition decision. Uh, the signatures are redacted for the um, major changes, but the day before- You know, I, I know it's an interesting factoid perhaps, but what difference does it make if it's the very same day by the very same person? What is the- is that some legal significance or factual significance in the case? Absolutely, Your Honor. It shows that the context that the FDA was absolutely reconsidering the 2000 approval and whether mifepristone was safe at the very same time it was stripping away the 2016 requirements. They were all sort of the same silo. The left hand knew what the right hand was doing. And as a matter of context, I just, I just think that the, the same day makes a tremendous amount of difference. Assuming that Arguendo that we do not agree with you on the reopening doctrine as Judge Wilson asked you earlier. Do you lose on the 2010? The 2010, Your Honor? You mean the 2000 approval? Yes. Yes. Uh, are we, then we're stuck with the 2016 and the 2021, right? So I, I think that's correct, Your Honor. Um, but if I can try one last time to convince you on the reopening. Um, in 2021, the agency says that it fully considered the REMS. Now again, um, the statute 355.1, as well as the regulations, require that each and every one of those safeguards uh, was determined to be safe. Um, it would be like, for example, if you had a toddler and you tested a bar stool and it has three legs and you said the, the bar stool is safe. You, you toddler can climb on this bar stool. Um, then you strip away one of the legs, or maybe two. Um, you're going to reevaluate your determination as to whether that bar stool is safe. Uh, I think that's what the reopening doctrine gets at. Um, with respect to Judge Ho's question to my friends on the other side, there was no opportunity for plaintiffs here to challenge in court the 2000 approval before 2016. And the reason being is that the 2000 approval uh, was not final until 2016, because um, that petition denial is what triggers under 21 CFR 1045. An agency determination is not final. The FDA is, 
determination until the FDA acts on a citizen petition. So that finality requirement isn't triggered until 2016. Okay, let's talk about the generic version. Is there any specific evidence in the record that your client sustained injury from the generic version as separate from the, from the other version? So I'm not aware of any specific evidence, Your Honor, but on the other hand, neither is there any specific evidence uh, that they have not. Um, here, if you look at the plaintiffs bear the burden of showing standing. I mean, in other words, they'd have to be injured by the, by the generic version of the name brand. Yes, Your Honor, but, but that's not in the record. No standing? I'm not sure that's correct. Under the FAIR system, as we've noticed, um, nothing is required to be reported um, unless there is uh, a fatality. Um, the FAIR system actually is quite onerous process, 48 pages um, of explanatory decision uh, pages on, on how to fill out a FAIRS form. Um, but part of that is including the dosage and the manufacturer, but we don't have that information. If you don't have the information, isn't that fatal? I mean, in other words, we're going to find standing based on the possibility that there might have been data if it were reported. So I, I think one way your honors absolutely can find standing is organizational standing. Uh, plaintiffs here, associational plaintiffs, fit within all four corners of both OCA Greater from this court as well as uh, Havens Realty. Um, plaintiffs, um, APLOG, uh, the re rest of the organizational plaintiffs have clearly expended considerable time, energy, and resources uh, in a number of specific and concrete ways. There was a 92-page petition uh, devoted to challenging the 2000 approval, along with a 30-page response. Um, there's testimony that that took considerable time and effort. There have been independent studies uh, performed um, to show the dangers of mifeprestone. There have been analyses of the existing uh, data from the FDA. The generic weren't there. And I mean, and they're not here either. So should we not do anything with regard to that? So, so I, think, I think, Your Honor, to come back to the initial question, I think um, if you look at the 2021 mail order um, uh, abortion mandate, um, what this court can do um, under Section 705 or Section 706 is act upon the FDA. Uh, what the FDA did was unlawful. Um, and so I, I think plaintiffs have standing, um, certainly organizational standing, I think also uh, standing as individuals um, and associations. But even as an organizational standing case, this court would be empowered uh, under the Administrative Procedure Act to either stay the effective date uh, of any of these challenged actions or um, on the other hand, uh, as the district court did, or excuse me, or under Section 706 uh, to vacate uh, those decisions. Okay, well, let's talk about the balance of the equities. Yes, Your Honor. Do you believe you bear the burden of showing irreparable harm? Uh, Your Honor, yes, I believe we have shown irreparable harm. Uh, defendants, or excuse me, uh, uh, defendants on the other side, all of their arguments boil down to a merits-based argument. Um, but if we look at the record here, again, I'd point you to, to write ROA 2368. That is the current medication guide, and it says that between 2.6 and 4.9% of women will end up in the emergency room, excuse me, 2.9 and 4.6, will end up in the emergency room um, because of misoprostone. Uh, this causes severe harm to women. Uh, as the medication guide indicates, there can be sepsis. Uh, you can lose your life. Uh, there are a number of harms uh, caused to women uh, by mifeprestone, as well as to plaintiff doctors in this case. How are your plaintiff doctors irreparably harmed? 
Um, I, I believe, Your Honor, being forced to be complicit in completing uh, an elective chemical abortion uh, would be an irreparable harm. Uh, in addition, there are a number of other harms that our plaintiffs advance here. Um, they advance emotional harms. Uh, the doctors talk about the um, heartbreaking toll that treating uh, post-abortive women suffering uh, grief and complication causes. Under Spokio and TransUnion, those that, that emotional harm in combination with the constitutional harm of conscience uh, is enough. Uh, there's a lot of evidence in the record about medical, the, the harm to their medical practice. Uh, they talk about emergency and chaos uh, in the emergency room. Again, something that is expected under the very approval regime uh, countenanced uh, by FDA. Counsel, let's, let's talk a little bit more about this harm situation. Um, it seems that you know, it's the first thing we would look at are the parties to the case. And the FDA would have an interest if it is indeed a lawful action, that it has a lawful action go into, uh, in, come into being and not be thwarted. That would be their interest. The Danco people would wanna not be put out of business. That would be their interest. It's, it, it, so, and yours, your, your, your client's interest would be to, to uh, not have to perform more more uh, after-effect abortion-type proceedings for a variety of conscience and emotional issues. And that fair enough, and, 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 and being concerned about the health of the women who might be harmed. We have stacks and stacks of all of these friends who have filed these briefs, and they're on every side of the, the, the aisle and lane, and this is not uncommon in these days. And so you have the people that are the People who, and this is not, I don't minimize their situation, people who are in sexually abusive relationships, and, and they filed briefs on both sides of this. There's one group who says, well, if you can't see the doctor, you're not going to get away from the being abused or human trafficked. And there's the other group who says, if you don't give them the, the pill uh, by mail, then they'll never get away because they'll be trapped by, by uh, the abuser. And I am not minimizing these situations on either side of this. That's just one example. And these are serious societal issues. Do, do, do those, do we have to figure out which way, the, which way that goes? Do we take that into consideration at all in deciding the, the balance of equities here? And how do we decide that? So I think, Your Honor, that might fit within the, the public interest prong, but the FDA's job here was to ensure that mifeprestone is safe and effective. There are other methods of obtaining abortion that are available to people in the tragic circumstances you uh, detailed, but that doesn't mean that the FDA is justified in approving a drug that sends between 2.9 and 4.6% of women to the emergency room. Um, just kind of extra out there, but they don't cut particularly either way because they're on both sides of it, and we need to just look at whether or not the FDA erred? I don't think so, Your Honor. I, I think that, that the briefs saying that the removing chemical abortion are, are overlooking the fact that surgical abortion is available. Um, that this, we're, this case is not about ending abortion. It's about ending a particularly dangerous type of abortion. So, so I think the availability of other abortion procedures would mitigate um, much of that harm you were talking about. 
uh, on the other side. In addition, Let's make sure we're yeah. doing the right analysis. Yes, Your Honor. Any help the other side has on this, I appreciate as well. Yes, Your Honor. Um, and respect to, to the um, interests of the parties here, um, there simply is no interest in the perpetuation of unlawful agency action. Um, uh, the FDA didn't even argue that it was harmed uh, until it's brief in this court. Um, in, in addition, Your Honor, uh, Danco's hands have been complicit from the very beginning. Uh, they urged the FDA not to require ultrasounds. If we're going to talk, for instance, about ultrasounds and the harm from each of the particular decisions, uh, if you look at the 2021 uh, decision uh, approving the absence of an in-person doctor visit, any in-person doctor visit, you can get it through the mail now, the studies that the FDA relied on ironically required ultrasounds. You'd go to a doctor, you'd get an ultrasound, and then the abortion provider would mail you the chemical abortion drugs. In addition to this, those studies showed that complications doubled. From the emergency room that we've been talking about, 2.6 to 4.9, there, there were two studies. One of them, the Raymond study, showed it rose to 7%. The Chong study showed that emergency room visits rose to 6%. The Can we consider all of these studies? Or are we supposed to only consider the studies that the FDA considered? Are we allowed to be roaming through the literature? Uh, you know, Your Honor, these are. I mean, and and I'm I'm not saying we're not. I, I'm just wanting to know. You know, I, I saw in one of the amicus briefs it said 590 women at an emergency department uh, in England go every month, and that they're three times more likely uh, to seek emergency ambulance uh, ambulatory complications because since this, since this this type of thing went into effect. But am I allowed to consider that, or do I say the FDA already took that into account, or maybe they didn't use that particular study, or it's not a good study? So, Your Honor, what you're absolutely allowed to do is look at the studies the FDA did. These are the two studies, the two U.S. studies that they relied upon in order to remove the in-person visit. Um, they admitted that the studies do not themselves, uh, this is at ROA 834, that the studies themselves do not remo support removing in-person. Uh, they acknowledged that removing in-person would increase ER visits. The only other thing they looked at was the FAERS data. But as we've discussed, uh, and the state panel aptly laid out, it's an ostrich in the head, ostrich in the sand head approach uh, to, to say uh, that we're going to eliminate reporting requirements um, and then justify uh, removing even more requirements based on the absence of data. Uh, so I think if you look at the 2021 decision, not only is there clear harm flowing from that decision, we've got an increase essentially doubling of emergency room visits from the two studies that the FDA itself relied on. Um, in addition, that decision is absolutely unsupported by the record. At a minimum, the FDA has to explain its decisions. Here it relied on three things as our brief laid out. None of those are, are uh, persuasive. Uh, the FAERS data is not persuasive. The reporting uh, from Danco is not persuasive because it was based on the FAERS data. And these two studies were not persuasive. If we're going to talk specifically about the 2016 procedure, um, the 2016 major changes affirmatively harmed plaintiffs here in a number of ways. To begin, there's no dispute that with each increasing week of gestation, there are more complications. 
again to turn to the current medication guide. Um, and this is in the record, and at table four of the current medication guide, uh, there is a 5% increase from week seven to week 10 um, in incomplete abortions. There's nearly a 3% jump in surgical procedures, 0.3 to 3.1. This definitively shows that the 2006 major changes uh, harm plaintiff doctors uh, as well as the patients they, they treat. Yes, ma'am? Major change, 2016. That's correct, Your Honor. What FDA actions force you to your clients to divert resources? This is an organizational standing question. Absolutely, Your Honor. I think each each one of them. Um, in particular, um, if you look at the 2000 decision, uh, plaintiffs have diverted resources from their usual activities. Um, if it were not for the FDA's approval um, of mifeprestone, then they would be engaging in other activities they've testified to, uh, such as protecting the value of life uh, at every stage of development, advocating for greater conscience protections, um, and arguing against surgical abortion. Does anything in the record indicate what specific activities your clients were unable to do because of a diversion of resources? Uh, yes, Your Honor. I think those are the, the three I just listed. You, those are specific. Yes. They were unable to do because of the diversion of resources. Or reduce them. And this court's decision in OCA Greater says that it is not required to, list, to identify specific projects. That's one way to show organizational harm, but um, it was not a heightening of the Lujan standard. The court's prior uh, language, I believe, was in City of Kyle that talked about specific projects. What OCA Greater says is, sure, that's one way to show it, but we didn't intend to heighten the Lujan standard um, as what, long as you have a diversion of resources away from ordinary activities, that suffices. Do you have anything further? Yes, Your Honor. I, I would like to mention as well um, the uh, specific problems with the 2016 approval. Um, Judge Wilson alluded to this, um, but in the 2016 approval, um, the FDA stripped away nearly every safeguard. Uh, they did not have a reasoned explanation for doing so. It did not have a single study that looked at all of these changes that on ROA 703, the FDA acknowledged were interrelated. This would be, as the state panel noted, like having a car with airbags and roll bars and seat belts and side mirrors and a rear view mirror and a backup camera and sorts of other uh, safety things, and then taking them all away without ever having a study that looked at that. And while a one-to-one -one match may not be required, what is certainly required, especially when the FDA says that the changes are interrelated, is an explanation for why that study doesn't exist or why it can cobble together different studies uh, in order to support those changes. Uh, that's completely absent uh, from the record here. Um, in addition, Your Honor, when you look at Section 355, uh, D. It requires a few things. Section 355 requires adequate testing, it requires sufficient information, and it requires substantial evidence. The FDA erred both in 2000 as well as in 2016 by relying on studies that included, included crucial safeguards like ultrasounds, like the 14-day follow-up visit. Um, and it doesn't explain why those things um, aren't necessary, 
Um, again, this would be like you know telling your toddler you can climb on something, um, but then taking away that safeguard. So the population council, as Judge Ho noted, um, even thought that ultrasounds uh, might be a good idea. Uh, if you look at the studies from 2021, those studies had ultrasounds, even though the abortion provider was going to mail the drugs out. Uh, so it's an unreasoned decision um, to have studies with safeguards and yet turn around and approve the drug uh, without those necessary safeguards. FDA and Danco say that enjoining the use of um, mifepristone would put miscarriage management at risk and sev several of the amici also. Does that weigh against um, in the injunction? No, Your Honor. I, I believe that 85% of OBGYNs uh, do not, they're, they're not certified abortion providers. So the vast majority uh, of uh, abortions are, uh, of, excuse me, of miscarriage management um, would be undertaken by a second drug, the second drug in this regimen, uh, the misoprostol, um, because most uh, OBs do not use mifeprestone. Um, in addition, Your Honor, I'm not aware of any case um, that would uphold uh, an unlawful approval based on an off-label use. Um, so, so I don't think that that would be an appropriate basis or an appropriate consideration uh, to uh, uphold FDA's approval here. Thank you. I believe we have your argument. Thank you, Your Honor. And we appreciate it just as we've appreciated everybody else's argument. Thank you, Your Honor. Just a few points, if I might, and then happy to answer any questions you have. Judge Ho, if I could go back to subpart H with you. Um, we say in our brief on page 45 of our opening brief that the approval of the drug was directly under the statute, under section 355D. 355D author also authorizes FDA to uh, approve conditions on the use of a drug. Of course, an agency could not promulgate a regulation that gave itself more authority than the Congress had given it in the statute. And so everything Congress, excuse me, everything FDA did in 2000 was pursuant to its statutory authority. Also, I want to say again that any challenge to the use of the subpart H regulation would be time barred because that uh, any invocation of, this, of the regime in subpart H of the framework is relevant only to the 2000 approval. Nothing in the 2016 changes reopened the 2000 approval. Uh, FDA did not look again at the three studies it had relied on for the 2000 approval. It didn't go back and ask the question whether the drug was safe for use under the conditions that were currently in place. What it asked was whether a different set of conditions would also ensure safety. That's what was under uh, review in 2016. The denial of the citizen petition in 2016 uh, doesn't also does, wasn't a reopening. And the denial of the citizen petition in 2019 did not reopen the approval uh, question because the plaintiffs didn't even ask for the approval to be withdrawn in their um, 2019 petition. To go briefly back to the subpart H issue, uh, I definitely saw what you saw said on page 45, uh, but. On page 10, you make the point that FDA, uh, I believe this is out of the 2016, this is your procedural history part of your brief. Uh, you note that in 2016, uh, the FDA's position back then at least was uh, Mifepristone was approved under subpart H, noting that pregnancy can be a serious medical condition. It's true that, yes, I, I don't mean to just. I, I grant, you could argue an alternative. There's nothing wrong with that, but just to be clear. Right, what I'm saying is that. 
I'm sorry to interrupt you. So what I'm saying is that the subpart H regulation was not a necessary predicate to the approval of the drug with conditions. That authority came from the statute itself. It's true that FDA used the framework that's in subpart H, and as um, my co-counsel, my uh, friend from representing Denko explained, FDA viewed the subpart H regulation as applicable to serious conditions. It used subpart H to approve drugs for pain management, for high blood pressure and low blood pressure, other things that are conditions but not illnesses. It explained this in um, responding to the, in its 2016 response to the original citizen petition. Um, but again, it wasn't a necessary predicate for the action that was taken in 2000. Um, a quick question about the Comstock Act. I understand that part of your argument is that the circuit courts in the early 1900s interpreted the act to prohibit only um, unlawful abortions and that Congress acquiesced to that interpretation when it amended the act and other drug laws. That's kind of the synopsis. Mm -hmm. uh, has the Supreme Court or even a circuit court ever applied the recodification canon to circuit court decisions? So in the um, inclusive communities case that's cited in our, in our briefs that's about um, whether there's a disparate impact cause of action under the Fair Housing Act, this is a case from 2015, I think, from the Supreme Court. Um, there, uh, the Supreme Court said, you know, looked at the fact that all of the courts of appeals that had addressed the issue under the original Fair Housing Act had viewed it as having a disparate impact cause of action. Those decisions had been called to the attention of Congress, and when Congress amended the statute, uh, it hadn't changed the operative language, and the court viewed that as a signal that Congress believed that that interpretation was correct. And so whether you view that as acquiescing in um, those decisions or not, um, it, it certainly was viewed as evidence that that was the correct decision, and the Supreme Court in 2015 held that, in fact, the statute does have a disparate impact cause of action. And so it's a similar situation here where you have all the courts of appeals that have looked at this saying it doesn't prohibit the mailing of, of things that are, unless the sender intends that they be used unlawfully. Well, there's some disagreement of whether that's true, whether all the court of appeals say, says, but we don't have time to go right, into it. Those, those decisions were brought to Congress's attention, um, and, uh, and so that's how the argument was. Our main argument on Comstock is that Congress did not charge FDA with doing a survey of all civil and criminal laws when making decisions about whether drugs are safe and effective. And so it just wasn't, you know, FDA is full of scientists, not prosecutors. It's just not part of their charge of their statutory duty to um, figure out if other things that people do with drugs that are, that they get approved would violate any other laws. So I just want to note, I understood my friend from the other side to have abandoned any equitable tolling argument, and so I think reopening is the only um, theory under which they could get at the initial approval. For the reasons I've explained, that decision was not reopened in 2016. Um, if I can briefly just touch on the ultrasound argument, um, although I see my time is running low, uh, I just want to note that FDA has never required ultrasounds. FDA explains that ultrasounds are not, in fact, a safety measure in the studies that they relied on, that they are, that they were, in fact, a data gathering tool. I wonder if the panel would indulge me. Because uh, I, I take it you agree that the safety issues do change dramatically based on gestational age. I don't think they change dramatically, no. What the, what the evidence that my friend pointed to was that the- and Why have these limits? Why have seven weeks uh, in the original and then 10 weeks? Well, they might, I mean, because I think it goes to effectiveness, right? And so the difference um, that uh, Ms. Holly pointed to was um, the difference in the percentage of times that the abortion is completed. Um, and it may be true that it, that it has a lower completion rate at higher weeks in some studies and other studies that showed a greater success rate at higher, I'm sorry. No, at, please, please finish it off. At a higher um, gestational age. So, so your position then, the FDA's position is seven weeks, 10 weeks, 15 weeks, 20 weeks, it's always fine to use this drug. The only question is whether it'll work to 
be a successful abortion. That's your position? No, what I'm saying is that FDA has determined that it's safe and effective up to 10 weeks. It has not made any decision about anything that could happen after 10 weeks. Um, that's been the data that was submitted to FDA. That's what the scientists okay, said. So, but implicit in that statement is that it could very well be very unsafe after 10 weeks. It could be or it could not be. I, that's not a question that FDA has made a decision about. Fair enough, but the point is, under the FDA's uh, REMS and whatever you called it before the REMS system, uh, age mattered. So I took your question to be- ultrasound the way to, to figure out age as well as the ectopic pregnancy problem? So it is not the only way. Uh, and so even in the studies that, were, that FDA relied on for the original 2000 approval, the French studies did not require ultrasounds because there are lots of ways to determine gestational age. Ask the patient. Pardon me? You can ask the patients. You can ask the patients, right? There's, uh, the same is true, is true with ectopic pregnancies. Uh, and in fact, if you- I'm sorry to interrupt, but we just had a case yesterday, and I'm not holding you responsible for yesterday's case, but yesterday's case was literally about how important it is to the FDA to find out uh, issues of age. That, that's in the context of, of uh, vaping. But the point is FDA was very, very aggressive about making sure that uh, vaping products are used only by adults and not by children. Right. Okay, but here what they're doing is they're deferring to doctors, to medical people, to make that medical determination about gestational age. And they say to doctors, you should determine gestational age, you should assess for ectopic pregnancy before you prescribe this drug, but they leave it to doctors to practice medicine to determine how to do that. And if you look, this is important, if you look at the rate of ectopic pregnancies in people, in women who have taken mifepristone, it's a tiny fraction of the percent of ectopic pregnancies in all women who have, uh, who are pregnant. So 2% of pregnancy. for ectopic pregnancy? Pardon me? How would you assess without doing some sort of examination? So you ask questions that you ask if the, if the patient what is- What question would you answer that would tell you? would say, you are you experiencing you know, certain kinds of pain? pain? Or do you experience shoulder pain, which is referred pain from abdominal trauma? Um, are you feeling um, you know, dizzy? There's all kinds of things that you can ask. And in fact, if you look at the data that's on, on women who've had ectopic pregnancies who took mifepristone, in half of those cases, there was an ultrasound performed. And in, I think, 60% of those ultrasounds, there was no evidence of the ectopic pregnancy that was seen, right? And so, but I think the fact that the rate of ectopic pregnancies is much, much lower in women who take mifepristone than it is in pregnant women generally shows that, in fact, ectopic pregnancies are often being found by doctors before they prescribe mifepristone. And so there's certainly no sense in which, and I think there's no allegation that the drug causes ectopic pregnancies or makes the ectopic pregnancy worse. It just doesn't work to end the ectopic pregnancy. When there's already a gap, I, do you acknowledge that there's a gap between reported complications and actual complications because different measures have wildly different uh, numbers reported of complications? Do you, do you acknowledge that there's a, we don't have great information on complications? I, I don't believe that, I, I don't agree that we don't have good information about complications. The reporting requirements uh, are this, that apply now to mifepristone are the same, a little bit stricter, but generally the same as those that apply to all other drugs or most other drugs that have been approved by FDA. The sponsors are required to submit adverse, end, adverse event uh, data to FDA on an annual basis. They have a very, serious market incentive to do that because if the labeling is not kept for up to date. For any adverse event? For any adverse event, yes. They're required to report that data. How do they get that information if, they, if the people don't go back to the, to the prescriber and most states don't require people to, they don't report from the emergency room or the, uh, you know, God forbid, the morgue. Uh, how do you get that information? Um, that to know that it's reliable enough to say we don't need it in a more robust fashion. 
So I'll just say that most women who take mifepristone do follow up with their own doctors, and so those doctors who are certified by Danko and GenBioPro to prescribe the drug um, have the ability to collect that information. But I think more generally the sponsors collect that information the same way that all drug sponsors collect the information. And if I can just complete the sentence I was about to say, which is that they have a strong market incentive to do that because if the labeling is not kept up to date in terms of expected outcomes and risks, then they, they face serious tort liability. And so the sponsors take very seriously their duty to collect information. They have to survey the medical literature, they survey studies, they survey all the post-marketing data they can find, and they are required to report that information, all that information, to FDA on a regular basis. Thank you. We have your argument. Thank you. We appreciate all the arguments today, and this case is submitted.